Good morning. It is Monday, November 23rd, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, we are joined by Rakaya Yearby to discuss health justice strategies to combat the pandemic's disproportionate impact on communities of color. Rakaya is a law professor at SLU and executive director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. Our host, Jenny Chadwick, is a local public health advocate here in Columbia, and she joins us via phone this morning. Good morning, Jenny. How you doing? Good morning, Mallory, and thank you so much. And Professor Yearby, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we're proud to have an expert here in Missouri. And, you know, I was mentioning to a friend on the West Coast that I was interviewing you yesterday, and he actually knew you and said, oh, SLU has one of the best health law programs in the nation. So um, proud to hear that here in Missouri. So I want to talk about your paper, Health Justice Strategies to combat the pandemic, eliminating discrimination, poverty, and health disparities during and after COVID-19. You know, Professor Yubi, we normally start the show with numbers. And so I want to give um, our community a little perspective of what's happening around our state and um, here in Boone County. So we follow Matthew Holloway on um, social media. He is just a, a statewide community advocate to get us informed. And he reported, so he's been taking the weekends off, but on Friday we had 6,700 cases identified Friday with 106 deaths in the state of Missouri. And so our average daily cases now have you know, more than doubled. We are now over 4,800 average daily cases in the state of Missouri. We are hearing across our state that ICU beds are full, that ventilators are to capacity, and that, you know, ER wait times are, are growing even higher. So Boone County Health Department has also been taking the weekends off now, but on Friday they reported 158 cases. When you look at what's happening um, by average, so we have a positivity rate in the state of over 20%, a positivity rate in Boone County of over 20%. And as most of our listeners know, World Health Organization says we should be keeping that positivity rate below 5%. But one of the things that we're really going to dive into today is looking at what does our demographics look like on this virus and why is there so many inequities? And so when you look at the state and the um, data by race on case um, positivity rates. We are looking at um, a case positivity rate for our um, for whites being 44% of whites um, having um, corona being identified to have coronavirus, and 9.69% um, for statewide for cases. And if you look at deaths, that that number still doesn't hold true in being equal. It's a percentage, we're seeing 17% of the deaths in the state of Missouri being black or African-American. And, um, and then when we look, you know, at um, other demographics as well, we're seeing higher numbers than we should based on population. So we know that there's inequities 
not only here in our state, but also in our county. So our case numbers by race. Um, so in Boone County, we have 8.8% of ratio of black, and we have 10.2% of positive cases, so higher than the proportional average. So first, Professor Yubi, tell me a little bit about your co-authors and how you guys came to write this paper. So thank you. Uh, so my co-authors, uh, Emily Benfer, who is at Wake Forest University, Seema Mohapatra, who is now at St. John's University, and Lindsay Wiley, who is at American uh, University College of Law. And we are all experts in a particular aspect of the social determinants of health um, and how that impacts overall health outcomes. So Emily focuses on housing and eviction. FEMA focuses on healthcare. Um, Lindsay Wiley focuses on public health and lots of the public health laws that have been passed. And I focus on employment. Um, and Lindsay and Emily have been really at the forefront of health justice. And so we have been working to highlight the inequities in healthcare housing, employment, um, and looking at the laws that states are passing to actually address COVID-19. And so we put together this piece just to highlight not only the gaps, the inequities, but hopefully to provide policymakers, um, the judicial branch, uh, the executive branch in the, on the federal level and the state with suggestions to actually begin to address this, these inequities as we see this pandemic continuing, even um, after we see the vaccine being put in place. Um, and so that's how we came together um, and really began to focus on some of the issues that you raised about the racial and ethnic disparities and deaths here in Missouri and across the nation, just trying to highlight um, that it is not linked to any sort of biological difference, that it really is inequities and access to employment, housing, particularly safe housing, and access to healthcare. So the paper goes through a health justice framework. And, you know, as we have all heard over the recent years, one of the biggest predictors of health outcomes right now is our zip code, where we live, and how, um, how these factors are impacting us. We use the term social determinants of health. Can you help to explain to our listeners what are social determinants of health and specifically touching on those, those structural and intermediate determinants? Exactly. So when we think about health, oftentimes we just think about at the point that you're at the hospital or at the point where you have diabetes. And it's so much broader than that. And it really goes into your access to uh, safe housing. Um, and I'll give you an example. Professor Moapacher and I wrote about this earlier this year about how uh, the lack of access to clean water, the lack of access uh, to working toilets, um, particularly in Missouri, 
in areas that are predominantly African-American um, increases your risk of getting COVID-19, right? You can't wash your hands. Um, you can't do the things that you need to do to stay safe. And we see that not only in St. Louis, we see that in rural areas. We see that um, where indigenous people live because they've had droughts uh, for over 10 years. And so really trying to highlight the need for connecting this lack of access to clean water to uh, the emergency preparedness law, stay-at-home orders, and the things that public health professionals are saying. You can't say to people that you need to wash your hands to prevent the risk of spreading COVID-19 and not take into consideration that people don't have access to clean water. And Professor Benfer has continued to follow this um, through looking at evictions, but also uh, what most people are not looking at is the fact that even when people are allowed to stay at their homes, that their utilities are being shut off. So again, lack of access to water and the things you need to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And so that's what we want to highlight um, in this situation is that lots of people talk about the social determinants of health and your zip code really matter, mattering. Um, during this time, though, when we're under a pandemic, we haven't connected the dots to the need for people to have clean water, safe housing, uh, to limit the spread of COVID-19, and then providing the supports for people to actually be to do that by keeping on their water by giving people water who don't have access to clean water. And we think a lot about policies that can be put in place. And, and you mentioned, you know, things like eviction or shutoffs, right? And uh, thinking big picture, okay, let's start at the top. What, what do we have in Missouri to help protect us from COVID-19 and the recommendations that are made? So we are living in a state that doesn't have a mask mandate. Um, and, and, you know, there's there's thoughts behind the way that we mandate policy and who gets penalized. And when we're putting public policy in place, you know, at, from a public health lens, we don't want the individual to be punished because we know that, you know, when we do individual penalties, we unfortunately see that go on our black and brown communities more often. So, as we think about a mask mandate for the state or putting those protections in place statewide, with the perspective of this paper, what are some of your thoughts on restrictions statewide and mandates and what we do and don't have within our state for support? Thank you for the question. And actually, Professor Moapatra um, brought this up in our paper, just looking at different communities and how they actually implemented their mask um, policies and did so in an, an inequitable way. And so she focused particularly on uh, the policies in New York, um, New York City, particularly where in particular communities, uh, high-income communities, predominantly white communities, you saw people handing out masks um, and joking around, whereas you saw in predominantly African-American, Latino communities um, not passing out the masks and actually arresting people 
Um, you know, I think it will be forever in my mind seeing uh, tapes of a woman getting arrested for not wearing her mask as uh, people pull her child away from her and slam her to the ground. So really the key is, is that if we're going to mandate some of these mask policies, that we do it in a supportive um, way, that we do it in a way that we treat everybody the same, but that we also do it in a way that protects the most vulnerable. And I don't think that we often think about that, that there are lots of people who are low-income workers who actually need masks and we're not providing them masks. So when we look at some of the essential workers, particularly in the state, when we look at meat and poultry processing workers, when we look at home health care workers who are nurses, um, who provide support for people in their homes, either the elderly, the disabled, lots of people, but they don't have access to masks. And so that was my next question, though. When we, when we think about yeah. our essential workers, and we also think about what should be open and what shouldn't be, you know, right now, um, a lot of the lower income positions are deemed essential. And these individuals are going to work and putting themselves at risk. But then we think about shutdowns and maybe shutting down the most highest risk places, which we know are likely bars and indoor dining and gyms. But the protections that we do or don't have in place for the income instability that we would create by closing businesses. So from a policy perspective, what are some recommendations? Because, you know, we live in a state where we don't even have equitable income laws for women, right? We know that women make far less than men and, you know, especially black women. So talk about what structure do we need in place to make sure that we protect the most vulnerable? Um, So a few things. I think being in a state uh, that overrode um, voters in St. Louis increasing the minimum wage has impacted a lot of these essential workers. And so one um, policy would be to actually implement an increase in the minimum wage for a lot of these workers. Um, two would be ensuring that the workers are safe. Um, we have not done a great job of enforcing health and safety protections under um, federal law and state law. And so a lot of these essential workers are being infected within the workplace and not actually being provided with the health care they need. Furthermore, as we think about income support for the people who are being laid off because businesses are closed, there's no reason that we cannot spend the money that we have received from the federal government and still have not spent to support those workers and to provide paid sick leave to many of the essential workers who are not either covered under the federal release bills or are deemed independent contractors. And one example of this are home health care nurses, direct care nurses, who provide care in nursing homes, which are one of the most impacted places here in Missouri and across the nation, and in people's homes. And they're usually deemed as independent contractors so that they don't get paid sick leave, they don't get overtime. Um, If they get hurt on the job, they don't get workers' comp. And so we really need to use the money not only to provide support for people who have been laid off and are at home, 
but also to provide support for the people who continue to work and provide the care that we need, especially as we are shifting some of these workers out of people's homes and into the hospitals that are reaching a maximum capacity. So you mentioned on income, right? Uh, and and one thing that we heard through the campaign was an idea about universal basic income. We heard it from Democratic candidate Andrew Yang, and it seemed to pick up some interest and speed. What are your thoughts on that when we think about these house equity lenses? I think it's so important. You know, Alaska has had a guaranteed basic income um, since 1976. Uh, they have been paying out dividends to workers um, since that time, and it has not decreased people's employment. Um, I think particularly at this point when so many people are either out of work or experiencing some economic uh, distress because of having to go to work, having to deal with hospital issues perhaps not covered uh, by health insurance, uh, particularly for the lowest income workers, that this is an important uh, support that the government can do to say uh, to help people continue to get through this time. I think when you look at um, when you look at the state, I really believe that it should be a leader. Um, it's actually behind because many uh, CEOs and wealthy people are already. Uh, moving on this. And so we see in Compton that actually there has been a donation uh, that provide that is going to provide uh, payouts to people in Oakland to be able to sustain them during this time. And we see research from Canada actually showing that people who were homeless, who received um, a basic income, were able to lift themselves out of um, homelessness, find themselves housing compared to others who did not have that pay. Um, so I think it would be a great idea, particularly as people in Missouri struggle during this time. And when we think about housing instability and homelessness population, I know here in Columbia, we have struggled to provide our homeless population with a stable place um, to be. You know, the city put a call out that was not answered. One of our council members stepped up to create a, a temporary housing structure, but there's still been such a struggle on um, on our homeless population and finding stable places. And then, you know, on top of that, when we think about utility shutoffs, um, our city here in Columbia has gone back and forth on <laughs> allowing and then what portion of your bill you need to pay before you can not have your electric shut off. So, and being in St. Louis, I'm sure that you guys are seeing it also from a policy perspective across the state. Can you talk about evictions and, and, and power shutoffs? You know, I grew up in a house that we didn't have stable um, utilities. From time to time, we had our water and gas shut off. And I can't imagine doing that through the pandemic. Yes, and I think uh, what is key here is uh, we need to provide support on both sides. Um, and so as we think about people who are trying to evict, 
or shut off water and utilities is that we need to also think about providing support for them because sometimes they are living hand-to-hand from paycheck to paycheck as well. And so it needs to be not only providing support for the people in the housing who need it, but also the people who have to uh, pay for the housing. I think um, when we look at Professor Wiley, who has done a lot of work in this area, particularly about states' emergency preparedness response, one of the keys is that you need to be transparent. It needs to be clear how the state and if the state is using its relief money um, to support the residents who need it the most. Um, in terms of providing housing, ensuring that utilities stay on. And from my perspective, and really uh, where the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity focuses on, it's important not to just make these policies um, in a vacuum, that we need to reach out to community members and community organizations mm-hmm. who are partnering with these communities to actually ask them what they need. It's not sort of thinking we can implement a blanket eviction um, moratorium without then going to the residents um, and actually asking them what they need. Um, it's not just protection from eviction, but it's a whole host of things, including food, um, including access to health care and medicine. And so it's really centering these communities um, and developing solutions as we use our power and the resources we have um, to do what they need us to do. And as the paper mentioned, and we'll make sure to get this posted on our social media to to engage the low-income and communities of color and empower um, them as leaders to develop and implement laws and policies and other interventions aimed at protecting and promoting health. I know that here in Boone County and in the city of Columbia, you know, the, it, we all struggle with getting the populace, no matter what demographic, engaged in the civic process. And so, Resources or ideas in that process? Yes, I think part of the problem of getting people engaged is that uh, when they have concerns, when they have voiced um, the things that they need, that we often ignore them. And so part of the issue is taking the time to build the trust of being open to make changes and being open to let go of some of the power that one has. Um, People clearly know what they need. Um, They know the resources. And just as you said, growing up, um, you know, you had points where um, you didn't have necessarily stable um, resources. And so you would know best what you actually need. And if we actually listened to you and provided the support that you needed, then people would be more invested in participating in the process. So it's reaching out to people, listening to them, providing the things that they need, um, and continuing to do this throughout the pandemic and the aftermath. So when I want to talk about health care in the state of Missouri. Yay, we expanded Medicaid finally in the state not active yet, but we have hope of more people getting access. But there are still, especially in rural communities, we know right now our hospitals are on the brink. They're full. 
There are places in our communities that don't have access to testing. Talk about the inequities that we have within our state and healthcare. Yes, I think this is a perfect time um, to actually begin to build structures and support the organizations that are there providing resources to people. As you mentioned, in your area, there's a lack of access of testing. That's the same thing in St. Louis, where we saw the zip codes that had the highest rates of infections, had the highest rates of health-related housing violations, and lacked access to free testing. We see across the nation uh, people waiting in line for hours upon hours so that they can get free tests where uh, they could go down the street and pay $150 for testing, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And so to me, in Missouri, what we need to do is actually provide funding and support for the people who are providing the services. Here in St. Louis, we have Integrated Health Network that has been working with community health workers, um, connecting them to show how important they are to increasing access to health care um, throughout the state, but particularly St. Louis. We need to be funding and working with them during this time so that they can provide support and outreach and testing to people. Um, we need to actually begin to pay these people and institutionalize them because they're the way that we're going to be able to build back a structure of healthcare that provides services to people in areas and rural areas. Um, we need to actually provide additional funding for rural hospitals that are uh, providing care to people during this time. So those are a few policy options that I think we need to move forward with quickly. And, you know, there are things that local communities can put in place. And, you know, when you were talking, a lot of these frontline workers don't have sick leave, right? So they're afraid to get tested because if they test positive, then they have to isolate for 10 days, and that's 10 days without pay. Yes, um, and that's why I said one of the uh, things that we need to move forward with as a nation, quite honestly, is paid sick leave. Uh, we've seen historically, even during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, um, that the lack of paid sick leave uh, was linked to a lot of the disparities in infections, um, hospitalizations, and deaths for racial and ethnic minorities. Um, and although we've seen some federal relief, uh, providing for this, many workers, including those in meat and poultry processing plants, direct care workers, are not covered under paid sick leave. States can act upon this on their own and actually uh, provide it, and Missouri should, because many of the workers either out of work or continuing to work as essential workers do not have paid sick leave. And if we're trying to stop the spread of COVID-19, we need people to stay at home um, if they are infected. And I think as we think about the inequities of accessing tests, so the White House Coronavirus Task Force makes some recommendations specifically to the state of Missouri and even to um, our local counties that all um, residential care facilities should have staff tested weekly and the residents tested weekly you know, I spoke with a council member here in Columbia who said, well, my mother's at a residential care facility and she's tested every week. And I said, you know, that is not 
equitable across all of our residential care facilities in in Boone County, and especially the ones that are more dependent on government funding. So the thought of the fact that we're not testing, we're not following the White House Coronavirus Task Force recommendations on making accessible testing and testing all residential care facilities, how does that continue to play into this health inequity? Um, It continues to play into the health inequity because we're not uh, stopping the spread. Um, And as I've seen uh, the reporting, particularly here in Missouri, that um, we see a majority of our cases coming from some of these residential facilities. Uh, We could address that in part by testing. We could address that in part by providing people with uh, protective gear, who are providing care. Um, And so we need to definitely implement um, a testing um, plan that will allow us to be able to identify not only the residents that are impacted, but the healthcare providers that are impacted and being able to provide support for them um, if they cannot go to work Um, particularly because, as you mentioned, um, sometimes they don't have paid sick leave. But one thing I think people are not looking at is that our healthcare workers are overtaxed. And testing is great, and identifying who has COVID um, is important and providing them support to stay at home. But we also need to begin to think about how do we fill the gaps uh, when we don't have enough people to provide health care services. And so I think the state really needs to... Um, Professor Yearly, we're wrapping, yep, yes. wrapping up. So what should the state do? Yes, thank you. Um, I, I think that it really needs to pull together a task force um, to figure out how can we use people who are community health workers, people who are at home, who are not getting paid, how can we train them to be able to provide uh, services in these facilities to people in their homes Um, because we are running out of people who can do it. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise and knowledge on this really important topic as we try to combat this pandemic and looking at longstanding discrimination and health inequities within our community. Um, Professor Yearly, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Special thanks to our guest, Rakaya Yearby, law professor at St. Louis University and executive director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. Leave a message for us at 573 or email gm at kopn.org. 
As always, you can catch us again live on Wednesday at 9 a.m. again with host Ginny Chadwick. One more announcement before we go. Meals on Wheels is collecting blizzard bags for their current clients when volunteers cannot deliver meals because of inclement weather conditions. More information about items to include in each bag and drop-off locations for those bags can be found by calling 573-886-7554. Again, that's information for blizzard bags for Meals on Wheels by calling 573-886-7554. Public service announcements or PSAs are a free community service provided by KOPN. We welcome the submission of PSAs that align with the interests and needs of our community, our listeners, and the common good. More information about submitting a PSA for air on KOPN can be found at kopn.org slash submit PSA. Thank you so much for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM for today's edition of Community Pulse. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned.